The sermon text for today is Mark 8, 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. So I guess if you didn't know, my family and I, we went to Costa Rica. It was my kiddo's first international trip, and it was awesome. We were super nervous, right? Taking three kids to another country, but we had a great time. And, you know, as, so as we get there, I'll just tell you that this interest, like just right from the get-go, you know, you land in another country and you know the possibility for misunderstandings just skyrocketed. Fortunately, my wife and I speak some Spanish, but we get off the plane, and of course, they have like their version of customs that you have to go and get all your suitcases and then put them on their conveyor belts and everything. So we go do that, and as we're going through the process, uh, one of the ladies is pointing at our oldest son, Landon, and she's not saying anything. I'm assuming because she just thinked we didn't speak Spanish, but she didn't say anything. So I thought she was just trying to say hi, like here's a cute kid, look at that, it's a nice fun shirt, it had like you know, water on it. And so I was like, hey, say hola, you know, and whatever. And, uh, and I was like, okay, but you gotta keep going because I gotta get these bags on this conveyor belt. And uh, so he keeps going and then like, She's pointing still, and it turns out she wanted him to take off this little backpack that he had. Like, he had this little backpack with a stuffed animal and, like, Legos, you know, that needed to go through. And I'm like, oh. So we're, we're one minute into this trip, and already miscommunication, and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, what is this going to be like? And it was awesome. It was really, really fun. There was, of course, a lot of miscommunication, just like anything in life. And I'm sure you're sitting here thinking, I'm pretty familiar with miscommunication. It happens and misunderstandings and happens all too often. And here we are at this text. And what we see is that there are some misunderstandings in life that are like a backpack on a conveyor belt, not a big deal, come back, put the backpack on. And there's some misunderstandings that could happen that could be really detrimental. So for example, 
If you misunderstand what you should do at a red light, as opposed to a green light, there's gonna be some pretty heavy consequences for that misunderstanding if those wires don't connect. You're at the battlefront, you see some people out there, and you misunderstand them, and you think they're the enemy, and they're not, and you're firing at them, pretty high consequences for misunderstanding, and we come to this text, and we see a lot of misunderstanding, and Jesus leaves zero doubt as to the gravity of this misunderstanding. He's going to clarify that to misunderstand who Jesus is and to pursue other treasures is a grave loss. And in fact, what we're going to see in this text is that a misunderstanding of Jesus that actually understands some things about him, let's just say 50%, but doesn't get the other part, is just as deadly as not understanding him at all. And now, as you kind of look at that and think on that, I, I, want, I want us just to pause and say there's hope, though. There's hope in this text. And here's one reason. Jesus speaks really plainly to the misunderstanding and clarifies what the disciples and what we need to know about Jesus. And so as we come to this text, we are going to see three things. We're going to see the crowd's misunderstanding of Jesus. So that's 27 through 28. Then we're going to see the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus. That's 29 through 33. But then we're going to see the result of a right understanding of Jesus, which is our end of the text, verse 34 through 38. So that's where we're going to go. And before I kind of set the scene, I'd love to just pray that God would open our eyes. The only one who could take away our misunderstanding and place in our hearts and minds right understanding of him and his word. So let's pray. Father, oh, we need your word. If it weren't for your word, if it weren't for your son, we would be lost in misunderstanding. And so thank you that we have the word of life. Where else would we go? Thank you for truth that grounds us in the middle of things that are confusing and hard to understand, and we can come back and we can know something that's true. And so as we open your word, would you transform our hearts? Any misunderstanding that we have about you or your son, would you bring right understanding this morning? Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word. Come now, Father, in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, before we kind of dig into the text, let me just set the scene a little bit. We're at chapter eight of Mark, and chapter eight, especially the second half, is really this kind of hinge point. It's about halfway through the gospel, and it is where Mark is going to very poignantly, and Jesus' life, take a pretty sharp turn. So the tone in the gospel shifts, and I think you'll see it even in our text today, but let me just bring you back to when we started Mark in this sermon series. I gave a one-sentence summary of the Gospel of Mark. You might not remember it, and that's okay. It was a while ago. Here it was. This is my attempt to summarize the Gospel of Mark in one sentence. Mark quickly, you've probably seen that. He uses the word immediately all the time. Quickly shows that Jesus, the Son of God over all creation, and that's kind of where we've been his power and his authority, all these healings, he's casting out demons, he's doing these miraculous gifts. We've seen that, and now we kind of transition, is the misunderstood suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom. That's where we're going. 
Kind of now, the second half of chapter eight makes the shift, and what is going to come into the forefront and right in front of us is people misunderstanding Jesus. Now they have, up until this point, but it's gonna be very obvious and very clear and very connected to his suffering servant role, which the disciples and everyone else totally missed was gonna happen. So we are now getting ready, I mean, chapters eight through 10 are gonna kind of be all of this blindness and confusion, and then we're going to start the road to Jerusalem where ultimately Jesus will suffer and die and rise again and show he's the suffering servant. So now, in our scene, we, we have Jesus walking with the disciples. They're on like a 25-mile walk to the place called Caesarea Philippi, and he strikes up a conversation for their commute, And that's where we start. And we start first by seeing a misunderstanding of the crowd. So that's point one. We'll look at verses 27 and 28. So if you want to turn with me to Mark 8, 27 and 28 is where we will begin. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. So um, I say the crowd's misunderstanding because all of that's wrong, basically, at the end of the day. Why? Well, Jesus isn't John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to pave the way for Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist says he is so unworthy to be near Jesus, he couldn't even fathom untying his sandals. So he's, he's much better than John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's greater than Elijah, and he's not just one of the prophets. This is God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. And so the crowd, if you will, or at least the disciples' opinion on what the crowds think, are wrong. They misunderstand who Jesus is. Now, so we see in 27 and 28 the crowd's misunderstanding, which really is just part one of a two-part question where we now move into the disciples' misunderstanding, which begins in verse 29. So look at verse 29 with me. And he asked them, that's the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Christ. Now, you might be thinking, like, I thought you said this was a misunderstanding. That definitely sounds like the right answer. Like, if this was a game show, like, it's like, ding, 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 like, definitely, that's the right answer, Christ. And, and here's the thing. You're right. It is the right answer. He is the Christ. And it's much more correct than, the, than like, the crowds, Elijah, John the Baptist. He is the Christ. But here's the thing. Jesus knows the disciples have a misunderstanding of what it means when they say, you're the Christ. Okay, so let me, uh, let me put it this way. So they get the right answer, but they have some misconceptions. So I don't know if this ever happened to you. I'm assuming this was universal in school, but there's a point in math when the teachers tell you on the test, okay, uh, yeah, you will get credit for the right answer, but we're also gonna grade your work. So you've gotta show your work, which, so, so here's what would happen. You would get the right answer and you'd lose points. And, and as a student, you're like, this is, I mean, this is a conspiracy. Like, you're serious right now? I got, I got the right answer. And, and you just think, like, they're, just, they are out, 
<laughs> they are out to get us as students. This cannot be how this goes. And now, right, as, as adults and maybe the wise student is like, oh, they're just, they're testing to see if you know the concept, not just get the right answer. And it might be something like they're teaching you the quadratic formula and there's multiple ways therefore to get the answer. And if you got the answer and you didn't use the quadratic formula, like you don't understand the concept that is going on behind the scenes here. You might have got the right answer. Okay, so here's the scene. The disciples give the right answer, but Jesus can look at their work. He can look under the hood and see what the concept is, and he can see you don't have the right concept. You might have said the right answer, but you've got a ton of misunderstanding. And we know that in part because of what comes right next, which Im- immediately like, norm- like kind of feels a little bit odd. So sorry, I haven't been tracking with the slides here. Let's go to verse 30. Here we go. Sorry about that. Here's the slide, verse 30. And he quick, okay, so they give the right answer. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Okay, so they, they rightly say he's the Christ. And Jesus says, don't go tell anyone. Which you should think that's kind of weird Why? Well, because when Jesus leaves, what does he say? Go tell everyone. And here, they've given the right answer, and he says, don't don't go tell anyone. Why? Well, it's because the disciples, though they have the right answer, it's fuzzy. They're blind in some spots. And if they were to go and proclaim, they'd be proclaiming a different Christ than really who's here before them and what it means. Now, remember last week, JB touched on a healing of a blind man? It starts in verse 22. And uh, this is helpful. This is other people just helping me see things in the text I didn't see the first time. But here's what happens. There's a blind man crying out for healing. Jesus comes up, and he, he's going to heal him. And so he spits, and he puts dirt on his eyes, and he like rubs it away. And he asks him, can you see? And here's what we see in verse 24. So 824. I see, this is the blind man, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Apparently, Siri thinks I'm talking to her. I'm not talking to Siri, but she thinks that. Here we go. Mark 8, 24. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Okay, so imagine. Okay, so he was blind, and now he's healed, but it's fuzzy. He can't see. And then what does Jesus do? He does another stage of the healing. He spits again and puts his hands on his eyes. And then what happens? He opens his eyes and he sees clearly. Now you ask yourself, what's going on? Because very clearly Jesus could have just done this in one stage, but he does it in two. And here's what I think is going on. I think this is a live parable of what is happening in the hearts and minds of the disciples. And I think we're gonna see it play out from chapter eight, especially through chapter 10. What you're gonna see is that the disciples see some things, rightly see that he's the Christ, but it's fuzzy and it's blurry and they can't see it all correctly, but one day they will. After the cross, after the resurrection, when Jesus ascends, then he says, go tell everyone because now you see. You rightly see everything. So though you have the right answer, it's still fuzzy. So why would Jesus say, don't go tell everyone? Well, it's because he doesn't want half-blind people going and telling a bunch of other blind people about the Christ and giving a half-representation of who he is. 
and, and misleading them. He doesn't want half-blind people being ambassadors for Christ to this world. He wants those who see him and see him correctly. So I think this is a live parable speaking to what's happening in the hearts and minds of the disciples. And so now you ask, well, what then did they think when they said something like he's the Christ? What, what, what were they imagining? What was fuzzy? What was clear? Well, I mean, they certainly understood a lot of things about the Christ, that it was just God's appointed one and might have had some conceptions that it was God himself. And, but here's what they definitely pictured. A king a ruler, a warrior, who would come and do what? Conquer the Romans, in this case, those who are oppressing them, and they would take back their land that's rightly theirs, get into the promised land, and they would finally rebuild the temple of God, and this ruler would be king over them, which is what many thought. So if you remember, remember that feeding of the 5,000? And Jesus breaks bread and... Five loaves, two fish, feeds 5,000. Well, the Gospel of John, here's what happens at the end of that. Perceiving then, this is Jesus, that they were about to come and take him, Jesus, by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again by the mountain to himself. So there's this fervor going around of rebellion and of the Christ, Jesus, who's going to come and he's going to lead this conquering army and we're going to take back what's ours and we're finally going to be the rightful rulers. And so, therefore, when Jesus goes on to explain that he is going to suffer and die, that doesn't fit. Conquering kings don't suffer and die at the hands of the ones who they're supposed to be conquering. And so, here's what we read from Jesus, what he says about himself. So look at verses 31 and 32. And he began to teach, this is right after they said, Peter said, you're the Christ, and this is what he said. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And just in case, we're like unsure, it just clarifies. And he said this plainly. So whatever happens next, Mark is making sure we know Peter does not react because he misunderstands what Jesus said. Jesus said it really plainly. And if we're right, that the disciples and Peter, as their spokesman here, have in their mind a conquering Christ, then what is going to be the reaction to Jesus saying this? 8.32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Because it didn't, this did not fit the paradigm. This was not the Christ Peter had in his mind. First of all, that's wild. Like, Peter, you couldn't have gone with like, Jesus, could you help me understand this? I might be misunderstanding something here. Like, fill in the gaps. I thought we're doing the conquering thing. You're saying you're... And he just goes to rebuke, which is pretty striking. Nonetheless, the idea here is that it's very clear that for Peter and the other disciples, they do not have this category of the suffering servant in their mind. Here's Jesus' response. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. So for Peter to deny that Jesus would be the suffering servant, 
is to show that it is Satan and the things of man working through Peter, not God. This is absolutely central to who the Christ is and what he came to do. So much so that he just says, there's only one option, and that is that your mind is not set on things of God. And so we come this morning with not only the question of who do you think Jesus is? Like if Jesus was here and he asked, who do you say I am? That's a question for us this morning. But also, how do you feel and how do you respond to who Jesus says he is? That's, that's the question. Not just who do you think he is, but who does he say he is and how do you feel about it? So if we were, for example, to pull the crowds of today about who Jesus is, you're gonna hear things like, he was a great moral teacher. He was a, you know, a man of peace and love, and he was kind, and he was a great example to follow. And now, that might be you this morning. You might hear that, and that might be the way you would describe him. And here's the thing, you're not entirely wrong. Like, he definitely was a kind and loving person, but you're half right, and in this case, I would want you to see that that half right, that, that you would hear this morning, that to hear that when you stand before Jesus, and, and he says, who do you think I am? And you say, uh, you're a wise teacher, it will be met with rebuke, not welcome. And so this morning, when we're asking, who, who do you think Jesus is, and how do you feel about who he says he is, I would want you to hear this morning that if, if, if you're the person that he's loving, he's kind, that's who, that's who he is. I, I want you to hear that Peter got the wrong answer the first time. And so like, I don't want you just to hear like, well, I guess I'm done for. And if I was to, to, to reconsider, there's no spot for me. No, no, he got the wrong answer. And he kind of, he didn't get the most kind words at the moment. Uh, get behind me, Satan, uh, admittedly, but as he heard and as he saw who Jesus was, his eyes were opened and he was welcomed into the kingdom as not just one, but one who would give his life for this one. And so I would just, this morning, I would ask you, if this is you, if you're thinking, I just, Jesus, I've just considered him a moral teacher. I'm kind of on the fence about who he is. I, I want to ask you, would you consider not how you just feel about him, but what he says about himself? Because this text is pushing us to say, and Jesus is pushing us to say, you can't just deal with half truth. You must see the whole picture. And what's the whole picture? Well, the whole picture is that Jesus came and he suffered and he died and he rose again. And the question is, what's going on there? And here's just one place that Jesus clarifies. It's in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to, served, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I would just ask you to consider that what it means when Jesus said he came and suffered and died and rose again is he came to pay a debt, and the debt is your sin, my sin, our sin, our rebellion against God, our wickedness, and what he's saying is I came to suffer and die that you might be made right with God if you would put your trust in me. And I'll just ask you to consider that. And now for many of you who say, yes, I'm there, I, I believe it, I, I just found it helpful for me to ask, are there places in my mind, in my heart, that when Jesus is describing who he is, 
I'm struggling to accept it or, or believe it. Or, or trust it. Because I've kind of painted this picture of him, and, and this part seems incongruent. And here, here's just maybe a way to look at it. The Bible says, in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes. And so I was just thinking, like this week, it's been, you know, a, there's been some tough things this week, you know, not least of just being sick and recovering. And, and now, you know, now I got kiddos sick and, and all, all of this stuff. And then you got things on your mind. And, and when suffering and hardship happen to me, those are the moments when, when I am thinking, okay, wait, you, you said, God, you care for me. But look at this. This is hard. Things aren't going well. You said you'd be near to the brokenhearted, and I, I feel lonely. This is hard. And in those moments, that's when I feel like the disciples, where wait, I see, I know, wait, God, I know you're near, but it's foggy for me in that moment. I'm like a stage one. And for me, in those moments, I'm fighting to remember what's true. And if you notice what happens in this, what Jesus brings is truth, words of truth about who he is. And in those moments, Few things help me more than scripture memory and then rich, theologically rich songs that literally sing truths to my soul. So I just, I want you to dig in and say, are there moments, are there times, are there things about God and Christ that, that I, I struggle to just embrace that I know are true? And I would just say, I just think it's a moment to say, we, we, we don't want to just stop there. If there's answers of yes, we push in with truth that we might know and treasure, not just the half Jesus, the three quarters or seven eighths, but the whole picture of who he is. So we see the crowd's misunderstanding. Okay, we've seen the disciples' misunderstanding, and now we're gonna see the results of right understanding, which is verses 34 through 48. So what does it look like when you fully understand who Jesus is? So let's go to verse 34. Probably the, you know, a section in the Bible, one of the most popular, rightly so, sections on discipleship. And here's how it begins. 8.34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we've now moved, notice, from Jesus talking about how he's going to go to the cross to now he's talking about the disciples going to the cross. So Jesus was saying, I'm going to experience, I heard it put this way, I think it's helpful, just opposition, shame, suffering, ultimately death. And now he's saying, you disciples, you're going to experience that. Now just pause and just think how radical of a shift this must have been for Peter. In Peter's mind, beginning of this conversation, he says, Jesus, you're the Christ. And what he's picturing is that Jesus, likely picturing, I should say, is he's, Jesus is going to lead this conquering conquest into the land. We're going to take back what's ours. Peter's going to be one of the closest, the, the 12, and he's going to march in and his family, and they're going to set up this in the promised land where they've longed to be. They're going to rebuild the temple. It's going to be this glorious overtaking, and now he's finding out 
that this conquering king is going to be oppressed by the ones he thought, Peter thought, they were going to conquer. He's going to be oppressed. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And oh, you also are going to experience the same thing. And sure enough, what happens to Peter, but that he goes out and proclaims the good news and he loses his life. And like if we're on the fence as to what Jesus might mean, is that really what he means? Here's, just look at the next verse, 35. Whoever, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. And Peter literally is going to lose his life for the sake of the gospel. Now, uh, we do have to be careful because I, I do think that Jesus does have in his mind that his disciples will lose their life, because many of them will, like physically lose their life. But I don't think the only application is physical persecution. But let's ha- we can start there. I think maybe it is a helpful place to start. And um, if you've, uh, you know, probably read this and you might have thought, is it possible not to mention Jim Elliot in this sermon? I don't think so. Uh, and... Uh, so if you don't know Jim Elliott and Nate Saint's story, I'm going to give you the, the shortest snapshot probably, but there's, it's well worth reading or watching because uh, these were missionaries in Ecuador, uh, them and, and a team, going to reach an unreached people group in Ecuador. And after working for a time to reach this tribe, a tribe that they knew uh, were hostile to outsiders, they thought they made some inroads. And so they go. And uh, Nate Saint flies in. By the way, Nate Saint uh, was an MAF missionary, meaning Missionary Aviation Fellowship, just based right out here in Nampa Caldwell. So, like, just, I'm sure it wasn't there in the mm, 60s, I think this is. Uh, But regardless, like, this is just pretty close to home. So they go and they land and they're getting ready to, you know, make contact with the tribe. And instead of being received, the tribe attacks them and kills them. And they die with guns on their hip refusing to defend their physical lives and die for the sake of the gospel. And it's only years later that because of the work they began that this tribe comes to know and treasure Jesus. And the reason I say, can you go through this sermon without mentioning Jim Elliot? Probably, but he has such a helpful summary of this text. He says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Because deep in Jim Elliott's bones and Nate Saint and this whole team is the reality that they can't keep their life. At any moment, boom, it could be over. You can't keep it. You could do some exercise and those things to try to prolong, but you don't know what's going to happen. At any moment, you could lose your life. And here's Jim Elliott and his team, and they're saying, it will be not foolish for us to lose our lives here to gain eternal life, something we could never lose. And I think that's a beautiful summary of that text, and then he displayed a life that said, I'm not just saying it, I believe it, I lived it out, and I I just, I would pray that a text like this, that stories like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and this team would move not just one, but many to go to the hardest areas of the world with the gospel, knowing that if you lose your life, you have gained everything in Christ. 
And, and maybe you're sitting here like, what would I even do? How do you even start the process of thinking like that? Well, we've got a, a mission board that if you're like, man, I, I just want to ask questions. It's a place to start. Come talk to me and, and get you in contact with some people who've been in some of the hardest places that you might go and carry the gospel to the hardest places. Now, that is, I do think, in Christ's mind, you would lose, you could literally lose your life. But I don't want a story like that, or like Peter's, to lead us to think that the only thing in mind here is that you would lose your life in death. There is a death going on in this text, but notice it's not actually physical death that is mentioned. So go back with me and look at verse 34. There's a death that happens, but it's not physical death. Look at what it says. He says he's calling the disciples, verse 34. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. That's to the death itself. It's that you deny yourself. That's what's put to death. It's not just that maybe you might lose your physical life and, uh, through persecution. No, it's that you, you die to yourself, your former self that seeks possessions and approval and treasures of this world, which is where, for example, we go next in verse 38. Look at this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. So why would you be ashamed of Jesus in this generation? Why would you be ashamed of him before an adulterous and sinful generation? It's because you want something from them. What do you want from them? You want their praise, their paychecks, their status, whatever it is. You want something from this generation, and therefore you're ashamed of who Jesus is because you know they don't like it. And so you, I'm not going to talk about him. I'm not going to live out him. I'm going to stuff it away because I want, and you just fill in the blank. And I can see it in me at times, like this desire for approval, and it leads me to tickling ears. Or here's, here's one. Like I could just see, like this dying to self. I'm just digging in saying, where are, there's moments where it's just so hard for me to die to myself. I just even think, like in parenting, what do I want in parenting? I really want it to be easy. Why? Not really for my kids, but for me. Like, I just want this to just, I, I just, I'm just so wired for myself that I would just want to trample over my kids so that it just goes easier for me. And I have to put to death myself. No, my kids can't watch TV for eight hours because though that would be a very easy day, uh, that I, I need to lay down preferences and care for my kids who I love, and yet it, it's, it's just putting death to myself. And so whatever it is, this is obviously, the stakes are larger here in the sense that there's a world out there just trying to reel you in with whatever it might be, that they're trying to win you over into away from opposition. If, if the cross is opposition, shame, ultimately death, then we can just say the opposite. The, the, not, not denying yourself. So what would it look like to live for yourself? It would look like living for the approval of this generation, living for the possessions, their treasures, living for their status. Now, I, just, I'd, I would want you to see, because I think this is just beautiful, that Jesus, this is God in the flesh, giving a command, and he doesn't just 
say, hey, you know what? I'm God. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Just do it. This is what you got to do. I'm God. Just listen to me. He actually motivates us. He gives us reasons. He digs down to desire, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to appeal to your desire. And I just think that's stunning. He could have just said, hey, I'm God. You just need to do this. But he actually appeals to reason and motivates us. And so here, here's what I mean. So let's just look at this whole paragraph just in its entirety, and you'll notice there's these four statements. The fours are giving grounding, like reasons of why you should do what you're being asked to do. So look again, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then he gives his first four. Four, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will save it. So already we're getting an appeal to a desire because what does Jesus know? Every one of us in this room wants to save our life. Just, that's just what we want to do. No, no one's walking around saying, you know what, I'm just, I'm kind of done, you know, this is like in the long, no, we, we, want, we want our life, we want to preserve it. And so Jesus is saying, if you want that, well, okay, here's how you do it. You pick up your cross, you follow me, you deny yourself, and so he's motivating, he's giving you reasons, and so now he keeps going <coughs> to give us reasons, to deny yourself, earthly comfort, treasures, all of those things. And now he's going to go to another four. So look at, let's see, where are we at? Verse 36. Um, Four, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So it's a rhetorical question, meaning we're supposed to supply the answer that's meant to be obvious. And the, the answer is, it will profit them nothing. Meaning, if, if you were to gain the entire world and get rid of your soul, Jesus is saying, that's not a win. You didn't, you didn't do well in this exchange of getting everything here and losing your soul. And then, just in case it's not clear, it gets another four. Here it is, verse 37. Four, what can a man give in return for his soul? So I heard it put this way, and I think it's helpful. Imagine that you go your whole life, not denying yourself, but pursuing approval, getting all the possessions you can, and let's just imagine that you get everything. You have the whole world. And you die, and then you find out You couldn't take it all with you. It was all temporary. And you're standing before God with all of eternity before you. And you say, you're realizing, like, this is, I I had all of this stuff, and now here we are. And you say to Jesus, wait, wait, wait. I've got the whole world. I've gained all of these possessions. I'll give you that. Like, would you let me in? I'll give you it all. Here, you can have everything. Here's Jesus' answer. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Answer, nothing. Like, Jesus' answer is going to be, you mean you're going to try to pay me in all the idolatry possessions that you, like, pursued, all of these treasures that you preferred over me. You're going to try to now sell them to me that you might win my affections. That's not the currency here. The currency is that you would lose your life. 
That's, there's nothing you can sell, you lose it. You give your life to me, you deny yourself, you pick up the cross, you follow me. And if you do, it will be great gain because on that last day, you will hear. You've gained Christ even though you lost everything. So you see the motivation? Like he appeals to desire, and the desire is that you would be able to save your life. So I'll just work backwards, and then we'll close. So here, this, this is work backwards. I think some, a lot of times when there's four statements, it's helpful to work backwards. And when you work backwards, you've got to change fours to therefore. So it'd be something like this. There is nothing you can give in exchange to buy your soul. Therefore, it profits You nothing to spend your life gaining the world's treasures. Therefore, give up your life and you will save it. And on that day, Jesus will not be ashamed to welcome you, which is what he says in the last four in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his father with his holy angels. There's an appeal to desire because there's an appeal to find greater joy. Greater joy than what this adulterous and sinful generation have here. So I'll give you one more text and then we'll finish. Here's how Paul says it. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So like, why do we say the term pursue joy here at Table Rock? It's because we actually think that this exchange is a great exchange. I don't want you to leave here thinking this is a bad deal. You give away all of the pursuit of all of these possessions and and worldly accolades and and acclaim here. And I would want you to see that in Jesus' own words, you get the most precious thing and you've exchanged something that's worth nothing. And that you would, that was very Piper-like, nothing. That's how he talks. This is very John Piper. Like, just that you, you would, like, see in this text that the treasure of this world, I know, they look so shiny and, and delightful in the moment. And would this text just be a text that would reset our souls to say that it's lying to us that if we pursue all of that with all our might, we will gain nothing. That we could decide we want to take a bite of that fruit, and what we will find in the end is that we're sad and empty, but if we run to the tree where Jesus hung, we will be fully satisfied. That yes, like today, you might be going hungry for the sake of the gospel, In exchange for a day, will you hunger no more? And today, you might experience and feel ridicule and shame for loving and treasuring Christ, but one day you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So to misunderstand who Jesus is and to misunderstand what the true treasure is, is of Grave importance. It's, this is not just a backpack and a, a, a quick customs thing. This is our life and our greatest joy at stake. 
And it's a joy worth fighting for, that we would have our joy in Jesus. And one of the ways that God has given weary, tired souls that can get distracted by things of this world, one of the ways he's given us to fight this fight is he's given us the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to take that together. And what we're going to do is we're going to take it, what, in longing of his return. Because we're longing for that return, and it's just a moment for us to remember that Jesus has promised he will return, and he is worth waiting for. Waiting through ridicule, waiting as you deny yourself and look to Jesus, he is worth waiting for, and that's what this table reminds us of. Now, this morning, if you're here, you don't need to be a member of our church to participate in taking communion. You just need to treasure Jesus. You need to answer when he says, who do you say I am? You say, he is the Christ, meaning he suffered, died, and raised from the dead that my sins might be forgiven and I would be united to God. And if that's you, if you're trusting in Jesus, you can join us, and I would ask, would you just wait and hold it, and we will take it together. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace, for your word. What a gift. What a gift to have your word. We long to treasure you. Forgive us for the moments when we don't treasure you. Forgive us for the moments when we, tra- when we, when we chase uh, ease, comfort, when we seek the approval of others in exchange for the gospel. And would you make us bold and those who deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. And would we be those who follow you with great joy. And so as we now gather to remember you through communion, would you remind us of the greatness of grace. In your son's name we pray. Amen.